This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Earth is heating faster than expected. Following deadly heat in India, absolute and unheard of heat records were set in France and Alaska. The Arctic is thawing out. Other places from the U.S. southwest to the Middle East were merely unbearably hot. People have died, and many more will be killed by heat in the future. But how does heat kill, and who? I have three experts to explain what we all need to know in the second in my series on extreme heat. Some scientists and authorities, like the International Energy Agency, warn humanity is headed for a world 3.5 degrees C hotter in as little, perhaps, as 25 years. Perhaps you think we'll just turn up the air conditioner, but much of the world's work is done outside. Can humans cope with those kind of temperatures? Here to help us is Dr. Elizabeth Hanna. She's a nurse with a doctorate and national convener of the Climate Change Adaptation Research Network for Human Health at Australian National University. We've reached Dr. Hanna in Warsaw at the COP19 Climate Talks. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. And hello, and hello to your listeners. Liz, let's get to your specialty, the capacity of the human body to cope with climate change. What are the challenges that we will face? If we continue up to, you know, that three and a half and some say four and indeed six degrees, the essential thing is this is ultimately it's not compatible with human existence. That's the raw and the ugly truth of it. And that's why we really do need to do something about it. And of course, the pathway to that is it's not all going to be hunky-dory and really nice until one day it's not pleasant. It'll be this gradual increasing change such as we're already noticing and and if you notice the you know the heat waves that are happening all over the world the floods the droughts the you know the typhoons such as the Haiyan this is happening when it's not even 1 degrees warmer i shudder to think what 2 degrees you know the guardrail that we're all trying to stay below even that is going to cause so much more human misery so i mean the major health impacts it depends really on where you are the countries that are vulnerable to these typhoons, they're obviously going to have more of those, such as such as the Philippines. It's very difficult for the climate scientists to attribute any specific particular event to, ah, this one was climate change. But that's in many respects the wrong question. The trend is on the basis of probability, the fact that we're getting so many more and they're so more intense that's the, the real question, and the answer to that is a definite yes. And so the people that are suffering the typhoons, Australia's had you know, intense droughts, intense heat waves and intense floods, and we're not alone. You know, Europe lost you know, some reports, including the World Health Organization, suggests that 70,000, 70,000 people died in the heat waves in Europe. And that's temperatures that are nothing like what Australia hits, but the whole thing is relative. Russia, you know, the Moscow heat wave, A, caused lots of fires, B, caused a lot of crop failures. And, and one of the sort of less direct impacts are when you have major heat waves and droughts and indeed floods. If you wipe out the crops for, from one of the major food exporting countries, such as what Russia did at that time, and you can sort of understand, if they lose a good deal of their stable crops, they stopped exporting when a major food exporter stops exporting, the food prices globally escalate and that carries over to the other basic foodstuffs. And if you think about the people who are largely dependent, you know, particularly the sub-Saharan African people, 
If they're already spending 80% on their, of their weekly income on food, their capacity to absorb doubling or, or uh, an extra 50% of the food prices is not something that they can't really do. So there are the complex ramifications in terms of food shortages and food insecurity, uh, water problems. Obviously, people are going to suffer if they're, um, if they're caught in the floods, the risk of cholera and the waterborne diseases. General heat causes a lot of extra foodborne diseases. And of course, when you change the climate and you get, you know, the malaria, which once upon a time was restricted to a certain area because it doesn't like getting below 15 degrees, when you find with warming in many countries, the range of the mosquito is extending into what we call virgin populations. And so the people who are not equipped to cope physiologically and indeed in their cultural practices, um, and indeed the medicos who, you know, they're not used to looking for, you know, malaria, dengue is another one that's, that's extending. And of course, my own work is heat. That's a real killer for uh, for places like Australia. But of course, as we've seen, I mean, cooler places like Russia and Europe have had massive death rates because of heat. Well, let's talk about the human body. What are the upper tolerances that we can handle? Um it's interesting when you think about it we like to keep well we need to keep our core temperature within a really very narrow range between about 36 and 37 and when the outside air temperature is higher than that then it's very difficult for us to lose heat and we generate heat just through our metabolism but it's interesting that sort of 80 percent of the energy produced by working muscles is heat so that has to be dissipated and when you have temperatures outside the the human body the ambient temperature that's getting close to that then it's really difficult to shed that extra heat and so if we can't shed it we store it and as you know when your temperature gets to about 38 you start feeling pretty ordinary Uh, 38.5 you're certainly reaching for the Panadol Um, in hospitals where I've started my working career we'd be in intensive care, we'd be certainly giving um, not only aspirins but antibiotics. You're really quite ill when your core temperature is about 39 and of course people die when their core temperature reaches 40, 41. We really can't tolerate that. Now. And, and what's really significant is that it depends on what your normal range is, your normal natural environment, but there is an upper limit. And if you think about when people like to put the air conditioning on or, or the heating, I tend to set it at around about 22 degrees, which is 15 degrees cooler than our body temperature. And of course, this basically means that when the outside temperature is much hotter than our body temperature, then this is when it becomes problematic. Liz Hanna, in the business press, major corporations and economists worry a lot about worker productivity. They tell us productive workforce, that's the key, yet they don't seem to worry about global warming at the same time. Or are they missing something? <laughs> Absolutely. The, uh, and this is a focus of a good deal of the work that I'm doing at the moment, that's actually looking to see what is the human thermal tolerance. I mean, obviously I'm Australian and, and my work is focused on Australia at the moment, but it's part of a global project. But at the moment, what we find is that the places in the southern part of the continent, they actually think are a hot day is around about you know, 25, 27 degrees. Uh, they can keep working, but they, you know, they feel it hot. At the top end of Australia, where it's uh, in the tropical region, we've got Darwin that's sort of 32, 33 degrees. It used to be 32, 33 every day. Well, now it's sort of 35 every day. Uh, but the humidity is extreme. 
And every time when we go and visit those places, the plane opens and we just get knocked by this wall of of sort of oppressive heat and humidity and we find it very difficult to move. A lot of people move up to Darwin and, and you know, the other tropical areas around Australia as they would do to uh, the hot areas and other places. Those that can't cope with it pack up and go home back to a cooler place. And we find a lot of, you know, if people are sent to work, if their families can't cope, they move back. What's really becoming alarming is that a lot of these areas are going to become even more intensively hot and that's going to probably make even a smaller proportion of the population be able to cope. And of course, all these places in, involve you know, people that work in construction, people that climb up your telephone poles to fix those when the power blackout, the people that change your car tyres, the district nurses who go out and visit people. And of course, in the heat waves in Australia, you can imagine the district nurses are, are really not very inclined to call in sick saying, oh, no, look, it's too hot because they know that if they don't go out and visit the people in their care, they're going to die. And so it's, it's the people that sort of push themselves beyond their thermal tolerance tend to fall into a few categories. There are those with the awful employers that force them. Hopefully in, in you know a civil society, we don't have ugly, horrible employers much anymore, but of course some will still exist. Or people that are in fear of losing their jobs. It's also people that feel responsible you know, they're responsible like the essential services, the police, the ambulance, the district nurses, the, you know, the SES who come and save you or fix your telephone poles or the military, of course, have been another uh, another category. In fact, a lot of the early work on heat tolerance actually came out of the military as uh, they were finding that the soldiers were dying in training and it was pretty difficult for the military to send letters home to their mothers saying, look, sorry, your son died. He didn't see combat. We just pushed him too hard. And so there is an upper thermal tolerance. We don't actually know what that is. There has been virtually no work done on this as far as the general working population around Australia, you know, in the world. And that's what what my project's actually trying to do and find out what strategies work, what don't work, because we're certainly going to have to change our way of thinking. Because the bottom line is that when you've got a hot place like Australia, and this is the same for all those Asian countries, the economy cannot tolerate us thinking, okay, well, it's summer, we have to down tools and industry just to shut up shop. Conversely, we can't keep pushing people until they die. Um, and, of course, a lot of those jobs just can't be done in, in air-conditioned comfort. But, we, you know, we really need to sort out how we're going to cope with this. And there's the, the bottom line is that if the planet keeps warming, it's going to be a real problem. It's going to affect our whole economy. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with Dr. Liz Hanna from Australian National University. She is a specialist in how the human body handles extreme heat. And as you point out, there have been studies done for the military and, and also for athletes, uh, how they're going to cope, uh, say, in the Summer Olympics. But it seems like we haven't done much about the miners, the farmers, or the people who keep our whole system going. What does need to be done? I think we need a new mindset. There are certain tasks that we can leave till the cooler part of the day and and do in you know the cooler times of the year, but there are certain tasks that really do need to be done. In some industries, that might mean having cool rooms where people can actually go out, do their job, and come in and, and cool down. Because certainly, I mean, even in Australia, some jobs are done at night. As it is, a lot of the road making in summer is done at night. Uh, picking the grapes is done at night, although I'm told that that's actually largely because the grape, it's better for the grapes rather than, rather than for the people. It's a sad reflection. Uh, I understand that in countries such as yours where you have blizzards and snow, 
that there's tolerance when there are blizzards and snow and people can't move. Even in places like Australia, there isn't. We don't have formalised tolerances for houses taking too long to be built or people not coming into work in those jobs that have some flexibility because of the heat. We're not taught in um, in the health curricula about heat because it seemed to be such a rare thing and, and it just wasn't on the radar. And of course now it's something that we're just going to have to educate ourselves and actually permeate it through, you know, through society, making people being aware of looking out for each other, looking out for their children, looking out for their elderly and being tolerant on each other in, in terms of the workplace and expectations. Well, Dr. Hannah, I'm assuming some industries and companies will be too slow to make the necessary changes. And will we see more occupational injuries and death due to a hotter climate, I would expect? And if so, what would that look like? Sadly, yes, that, that probably is true because it's, uh, I mean, in an ideal world, all industries, all companies and everyone would behave perfectly. Although, sadly, this we realize this isn't always the case. There are some positive movements that we're seeing in Australia now, but of course, it's, and of course, interestingly, they're the ones that are signing into uh, being participants in my project. They're the ones that actually recognise that heat is an issue. Those that say, oh, no, 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 not interested, they're the ones that we really do need to, to get to, but of course, you can't participate in people who won't, uh, who won't engage with you, um, and you wonder what their work practices are. What does it look like at the medical level when these things happen? There's a few things. At the light level, dehydration is a really, really key part of it because of the extra strain it puts on the body. When people get to a certain level of dehydration, and it's really at the very early stages, your cognitive function starts to diminish. This becomes really problematic if people are in charge of heavy equipment or making decisions. And this is only when you're, you know, only a few percent, very small percent of dehydration. There's other risks such as even just sweaty hands and people's, you know, slipping and, and dropping things. And so the occupational health and safety is an issue in, in that respect. And it's, that can come at, at even, even sort of the early stages. In the hot places such as uh, our tropic, one of our tropical towns, uh, Darwin, 80% of the violence happens during certain months of the year, which is called the build-up. And that's when it gets really hot and the humidity starts to kick in. And this is the, uh, you know, the male-to-male violence and the domestic violence. That's huge. That's, it's because it's become very oppressive. So there's mental health issues as well in terms of, you know, violence and irritation, aggression. And physiologically, it's interesting the pathway that happens. It's, if you're fully acclimatized, obviously what our body tries to do is to, um, kick in the thermoregulatory system and that's when it's hot it's largely through perspiration so we start sweating a lot sweating adds to the dehydration given and the other thing is when it's hot we try to shed heat by opening up all the skin blood vessels which means that the volume of your blood vessels opens up a lot so a you're losing fluid by sweating b it's opening up the vessels which and if you increase the volume of the of the circulatory system, the pressure goes down, which means you really do need to drink to fill up that uh, that that volume. If you're not drinking enough, that means that your heart is working really really hard to keep perfusing that. And if you're working or exercising or doing things, it's also trying to send a lot of blood to your muscles. At the same time, it's trying to dissipate heat by sending a lot of blood to the skin. And so it's working, that's what, it goes very, very hard and it works very fast and, and, and very strong beats. And that's why 
the people that have compromised cardiac performance, they're the ones that are likely to uh, to suffer early. And of course, just in heat waves, even if people aren't actually working, it's one of the reasons why you find the elderly who are the first to succumb. But of course, that can happen to anyone who's pushing themselves too hard. And people tend not, not to recognise it. In, in a place like Australia, some of the responses we're getting from people we interview is that, look, it's just summer, get over it. You, you know, don't be wussy. You know, you can keep going, just, you know, soldier on. And I think this is where we need to change our mindset in the fact that recognise that heat can kill and is killing people. In fact, it's already killing more people than the, than the road, road death. And uh, heat has killed more people in Australia than any other natural hazard ever. Um, and, and this is repeated annually. And this is even prior to the increased deaths that we're having with all these extra fires and, you know, these extreme heat waves. Because, I mean, we've we got up to... Um, you know, a city in Melbourne, you know, 4 million people, on the outskirts of Melbourne was just under 50 degrees, and that's five zero. A city can't cope with temperatures like that. The train lines buckled, so we had to stop the trains and put people out on buses and walking in extreme heat. It's, it's just not tenable. And that's where we're going if we keep using fossil fuels. Our guest has been Dr. Elizabeth Hanna, an expert in global heating and human health at the Australian National University. Thank you so much, Dr. Hanna. Absolute pleasure. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Radio EcoShock. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Our guest is Dr. Jonathan Patz, Professor of Environmental Studies and Population Health Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He has been a lead author on IPCC reports as well. Dr. Patz, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Alex. In 2009, you gave a talk at the 16th World Congress on Disaster and Emergency Medicine where you predicted both foreboding clouds and silver linings when it comes to global climate change and health. Can we start with the clouds? What sits near the top of the list of new worries? Well, well, the challenge of uh, climate change is that it can affect not only our uh, ecosystems and, and the uh, and the world around us, but it can affect our own health. And as a public health issue, climate change can affect us through so many different pathways that I view this as a, an enormous health challenge. For example, we all know about problems of direct effects of heat waves and of uh, storms. Uh, these are certainly climatic risks that we know about, but there are some even broader issues like the effect of uh, on agriculture and nutrition from extremes in climate around the world. So those are uh, some problems with food shortages. And then many diseases are climate sensitive, diseases carried by mosquitoes, for example, like malaria or dengue fever. Uh, these are all very climate sensitive, and many of the models are showing that these types of diseases will increase under scenarios of uh, of global warming. And one other item, just, you know, not just temperature, but the climatologists tell us that as Earth warms, we'll have a much more uh, dynamic hydrologic cycle, so water cycle, so more floods and more droughts. And if that's the case, then we're, you know, we may have problems with contaminated water and waterborne diseases as well. So this is why I think that 
climate change represents such a different and large health issue because it crosses many different types of illnesses and can affect us not just through one pathway but uh, from many pathways. Well, it is so complicated because we're dealing with all the different species that that interlock and, and some of them end up impacting humans especially. I wanted to talk about malaria and, and dengue fever just a little bit. Is it going to, as as the models project, will it affect more people in the uh, third world, as we call it, or is it also going to spread into new areas where we hadn't seen it before? Uh, well, Alex, that's, a, that's a, a tricky question. We do know that diseases like malaria they are temperature limited. So in other words, the parasite cannot even develop inside the mosquito unless it's warm enough, which is why uh, it's a tropical disease. So there are models that show malaria will increase in its transmission season so that uh, you know the, the mosquitoes may be transmitting over a longer period. The intensity of transmission uh, such that... Um, Mosquitoes become infectious more quickly uh, under under warm and humid conditions. So these are things that are are, are fairly well documented, and and we understand these. Now, regarding movement of disease into a different uh, geography, that's a little trickier because, of course, diseases and and climate and environmental risks happen in the context of human society. Uh, and infrastructure and our capacity to adapt, for example. Uh, if, if, you, uh, if a disease moves from a poor country with not very good housing, no screens on windows, and not much uh, health infrastructure, um, and may move poleward towards uh, cooler climates, if uh, they cross the boundary into a wealthy country that has better infrastructure, of course, you know, you have to take that into account. So I think the potential and the the risk of diseases moving geographically is definitely real. The question is, you know, will we really see these diseases or not? That's uh, That's up for grabs. And it may be that we spend more money on preventing them, and we need to spend more money to prevent some of these diseases as they increase in risk. But I'm not sure whether or not they'll actually appear. Will climate changes imperil uh, people, for example, in North America, or is it just a problem for uh, people in faraway places? Well, certainly in North America, we already have people dying in heat waves. Uh, The Chicago heat wave in 95, uh, you saw over 700 people dying in that one event. And we, we continue to have mortality and hospitalizations from heat waves. So that's something that could be exacerbated with climate change, and that's the likelihood. The other thing is that there are still millions of Americans that live in uh, counties where the air quality is uh, not meeting the EPA standards. So air pollution uh, is a a problem in North America and and in our country, and uh, the projections for climate change are not good in that Air quality can be affected in two ways. One, that with warmer temperatures, you change the atmospheric chemistry such that you can have more ground-level ozone formation, you know, smog ozone. That could be a problem. The climate models also show more stagnant air masses in the future so that, 
you know, not only uh, may you have issues with atmospheric chemistry, but also the dynamics and winds and things like that, uh, you could have more stagnant air masses and therefore pollution issues. So those are things that affect us. And I especially think for, well, for my region of the U.S. in the upper Midwest, uh, in the Great Lakes region, you know, we have a lot of issues right now with handling of rainfall runoff and contaminated water systems. Uh, and in fact, across the United States, there are still over 700 communities that combine their stormwater with sewage simply from, you know, the design of their combined uh, sewer system. And it's very expensive to fix that now. So we experience these combined sewage overflow events every year already in this country. The projections are for increases in intense rainfall events. Uh, we've done some modeling, and in this region, in, in, the, in Wisconsin, we, we may see upwards of a 40% increase in heavy rainfall events that, of course, would stress our water systems and our water infrastructure. So I, I think these issues of heavy rainfall patterns and water contamination, air pollution, and uh, heat waves definitely are of high relevance in, in the United States. And one other quick caveat about malaria increasing and, and places where developing countries may be hit very hard from climate change we live in a globalized world, and increases in disease anywhere really do have uh, the potential to come back and, and affect every country in the world. So back in the old days, before we had international travel and, and transport, uh, you know, maybe it was a different story, but we're really very interconnected these days. As we've just seen with uh, some of the epidemics that have happened, I want to move to the ocean as well. I noticed in one port that you did, I mean, we've just seen NASA recently report record warm ocean temperatures, and that affects all the sea creatures. But you've said that that could have some blowback effect on our own uh, health, especially with our food. You know, this is uh, an interesting scenario that, uh, you know, warmer sea surface temperatures could affect all sorts of uh, issues from uh, generating storms to um, uh, sea level rise and, and issues like that. One thing that I think is very concerning regarding nutrition is if our fisheries there in, in jeopardy, that would really subject many populations to uh, protein malnutrition. The scariest thought for me is the acidification of the ocean. Now, this is something that I am not an expert in, but I've heard uh, other people that have, they share a concern that because much of uh, the CO2 that is increasing in the atmosphere is absorbed in the ocean, that becomes, that acidifies the ocean. And if that happens to some extent, you know, there's a point where coral reefs will start dying and we'll lose our fisheries. That's a, a scary thought to me. Again, I'm not, you know, I know these are, these are scenarios, and uh, other people uh, can t speak to this topic better than I can. But I've, I've seen uh, there's a concern there, and certainly for me in public health, uh, if we lose coral reefs in our fisheries, that's, that's not a good thing for our uh, population health. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org.
This is a Radio EcoShock special, Extreme Heat Number 2. We are examining the health impacts of the record-setting heat even in these early days of planetary warming. This is Radio EcoShock. We're talking with Dr. Jonathan Patz about the intricate ways our health is linked to changes in the climate. Well, Dr. Patz, as you know, James Lovelock has predicted massive human migration as the world warms. Uh, I wonder what are the health impacts that physicians in the future may have to look for when that happens? Well, when you think about sea level rise and storm surges, uh, droughts and famine, uh, that's going to displace a lot of people. You know, people are going to be on the move either from coastal areas or from from uh, drought-ridden uh, locations. And that issue of uh, sort of environmentally forced refugees, that could be a very disruptive uh, in, in terms of public health. And in fact, it may even be the iceberg under the tip of the iceberg when we think about, you know, massive public health challenges. Uh, This is one, you know, displaced populations because of these environmental extremes uh, could be extremely serious. It's very hard to quantify those. Take in point the the famine that hit North Korea a few years back. People were arguing, uh, you know, well, what, what was the most significant? Was it the extreme drought or the inflexibility of the government that sort of really propelled this uh, this disaster. And of course, it's both. And to sort of disentangle that is, is difficult. But I, I do think that that issue of environmental environmentally forced refugees uh, is very, uh, could become a major issue. And I suppose, too, that uh, we don't really know how climate is going to affect agriculture. It might help it in some areas and hurt it in many others. But if there are food shortages or malnutrition, of course, that shows up as health emergencies. Yes. And, and you know, you make a good point there. With climate change, there are probably going to be some winners and some losers. Uh, the former Soviet Union may get a longer growing season and, and they may, may fare well for a while with, with agriculture. But it's it's places that are already um, water-restricted um, and, and places that already have problems uh, where the climatologists predict that things will, will be exacerbated by, by climate change. What are some of the things that we don't know about health and climate change? Where are the rich areas that need more research? Well, certainly there are so many diseases sensitive to climate, be they the vector-borne diseases, waterborne diseases, and, and air pollution as well. There are a couple key areas that we really need to increase our, our knowledge. Regarding air pollution, we, we understand that warmer temperatures and more stagnant air masses definitely would pose a, a problem with more ground-level smog ozone pollution. What we really need more work on, though, is um, particulate air pollution. So assuming, let's just assume that emissions are constant. How will climate conditions, change climate conditions, affect particle formation and, and, and that type of issue? Because particles, particulate air pollution, the fine particles are very dangerous. We don't have as, as good knowledge on the particulate air pollution modeling as we do with the ozone. For infectious diseases, we know the ecology of many vector-borne diseases, and the vector-borne diseases uh, are the most sensitive to environmental conditions because they 
unlike a directly transmitted disease that goes from one person to the next, these are diseases that go through a cold-blooded insect like a mosquito that's subjected to environmental conditions and then passes the disease to the next person. We really need to know more about disease ecology than we do today. So so that's another uh, big area. And finally, um, the capacity to adapt to these these changes is something that we also need to, to look at. For example, when you think about rainfall and runoff, uh, there are so many cities in this country, in the U.S., that have uh, rusting pipes and and failing water systems. We need to know how bad it is. I mean, we we don't uh, in many cases. Uh, there have been some trials where you you put some dye down into a well, and you find the stuff. You know, you may be, maybe you put it in a sewage uh, pipe, and you find the stuff in drinking water later. You know, there are lots of you know, these infrastructural issues that we don't really know what our baseline is. And if we're going to put more strain through climate extremes on a water system of a city, uh, it'd be nice to know what the baseline, what what the status of that system is right now. And it looks like some cities uh, may not have a water supply. When we look at what happened in Atlanta or out in the west there where it's drying out, that's another problem too. Sure. Water quality and quantity. Yeah. Well, what are the silver linings, the possible benefits of this challenge that's coming up to us? Right. Well, I, you know, I think there are some tremendous opportunities here. For example, just take uh, the urban environment, for example. In, in our country, 60% of Americans do not get the minimum recommended level of exercise every day. This is, you know, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, obesity is, has been pegged as our number one epidemic in this country. And so we, you know, we have their nutritional issues, but I think in many cases the way we have designed our cities around the automobile rather than around people and people on bicycles has made us an unhealthy population in many cases. And so considering that transportation represents one-third of greenhouse gas emissions, if we were to green transportation and have truly multimodal transportation where people really would have a choice to take um, take mass transit or ride a bike or walk somewhere, we would be a healthier population for it. And I think when you look at American cities and if you, know, if you were to take climate change and really mitigate emissions from automobiles and, and reduce our automobiles and try to have uh, other options, we would have tremendous benefit from the exercise opportunities. And people can sign up and, and go to a gym and pay a lot of money, and, and many of us do that because we have to. But if we were to make, uh, you know, have this opportunity for, you know, in a daily routine like commuting to work, this could be uh, extremely beneficial. In addition, of course, if you were to replace uh, automobiles with with bicycles or a few buses or some trains, uh, you would greatly benefit from the reduced air pollution in urban areas. So um, here's here's a case where even if climate change didn't happen, Simply by decarbonizing our energy and, and going with green transportation 
and green power generation getting away from coal or, you know, as far as air pollution, those would have tremendous benefits in themselves whether or not climate change happens. It's just simply sort of a wake-up call reminding us that, you know, we really are consuming a lot of energy and the way we've designed our energy consumptive urban design and transportation systems, they're making us unhealthy and it's time that we change those uh, those systems and built built cities uh, that were, were good for people on foot and bike rather than in a four-wheel uh, automobile. Well, as we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to add, a parting thought for our listeners? You know, I think we're in a, in a very exciting time. I think the, the awareness of climate change and the potential risks uh, is enormous. Um, I think the, the issue of energy efficiency, be it for climate change or national security and, and, and independence and things like that, um, we're at a, a, a great time to rethink the way we operate in, as far as our energy consumptive lifestyles because we do consume per person far more than any other country in the world. And uh, this is a great time to, to recognize that being green is also being healthy in this case. So I think, uh, I think it's really a, it's a tremendous opportunity that we can really uh, embrace this. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Our guest has been Dr. Jonathan Patz, a world-recognized expert on climate and health from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Patz, thank you very much for your valuable time. You're quite welcome, Alex. This is a Radio EcoShock special, Extreme Heat number 2. Covering the world, this is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Are we making a world where it will be too hot to go outside? Is the latest deadly heat wave in India a sign of that? We'll talk about all that and more with our next guest, scientist Robert Kopp. He's an associate professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Rutgers University in New Jersey. He's associate director of the Rutgers Energy Institute, and he was an author in the fifth assessment report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He's a real working scientist. Bob Kopp, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. It's good to be here. You are co-author of a thought-provoking op-ed in the New York Times, published June 7th. The title is The Deadly Combination of Heat and Humidity. Was that spurred by the massive heat wave that just hit India? Uh, yes, it was. It was building off of work we had done over the last couple of years, but it was certainly the heat wave in India, which may have caused up to about 2,500 deaths that spurred us to write that. How accurate are those death records that are reported by governments and the media? Well, it really depends. So one of the things it depends upon is what you mean by a death. So the numbers like we're seeing out of India, those are, the, I believe, the number of deaths that are essentially recorded as heat-related deaths. If you're an epidemiologist and then you go and look at heat wave after the fact, what you tend to look at instead is are what called excess deaths. So basically, you know, compared to a typical May, how many deaths did you see during this heat wave? And then you also have to account for the fact that there may be some people who died during the heat wave who might ordinarily have just died a couple of weeks later. So there's the statistic of excess deaths, which is usually significantly higher than the, the direct deaths. So there's that difference. I've also just been looking at the news a little today, and there's some suggestions that the number of direct deaths in this latest heat wave may have been slightly overreported. 
So maybe more than the sort of 1600, 2000 range rather than 2500 range. But I think those numbers are still going to be sorted out for a while. Do heat waves only kill people in developing countries? Uh, not at all. Uh, in fact, you know, the most fatal heat waves of the, uh, probably of the, of the last 115 years and certainly of the last couple of decades have been the ones in Western Europe in 2003 and in Russia in 2010. So not just developing countries. So one of the factors, it seems to me, leading to more deaths is the number of hot days and hot nights with no relief. Why is that important? Well, it's uh, if you think about you know a typical night, if it cools, if your body, you have a chance for your body temperature to cool down, you can cope a little more during the day. If it's still just as hot and humid at, in the middle of the night as it was during the day, and especially if it's just as humid in the middle of the night, um, and you don't have access to an air-conditioned space, that that makes it really hard on you. I mean, just think about the think about a really horrible day. You know, you're in Vancouver, so um, I can't. I don't have a great example to give you. But you know, if you've ever been to say Washington D.C. or New Orleans, uh, you can think of like a bad day there, and just think about if you have that not just day after day, but night after night, as you do in some heat waves, you know, and if you don't have the relief provided by air conditioning or other access to cold spaces. The key fact you raise is one we understand physically, but poorly intellectually. We all know heat feels worse when it's humid or muggy, as we might say. What happens to the body to make humid heat more dangerous? Well, there's basically two ways the body has of cooling itself down. One is basically to expand the blood vessels near the surface of the skin um, to sort of radiate more heat outward. Um, And that only works if the air outside is is cooler than the body, obviously. You can't radiate heat into an environment that's hotter than you. Um, The other main way of of releasing heat um, is, of course, sweating, right? So you, you sweat, um, you get, you get water on the surface of the skin, and then when that that water evaporates, it carries off uh, some heat with it. And, if you are in a dry environment, that works great. But as it becomes increasingly humid, the ability to cool yourself by sweating becomes uh, weaker and weaker. Meteorologists measure something called wet bulb temperature, which is basically what, what you measure if you take a thermometer and wrap the bulb of the thermometer in a wet cloth. And that gives you a measurement of the temperature to which you, you can cool yourself by sweating. So... If the wet bulb temperature is 80 degrees Fahrenheit, then nobody's going to be able to cool their skin temperature below 80 degrees Fahrenheit by sweating. Canadian weather forecasters try to combine that and express that heat and humidity into something called the Humidex Index. Really, there doesn't seem to be a clear way to communicate this to the public yet. Do you have suggestions on how we could do that better? Well, so the heat index is actually not a bad way of doing this. The, the wet bulb temperature is more tied to what's going on physiologically. In the American Climate Prospectus, which is the report we did last year for the Risky Business Project, we took wet bulb temperature and divided sort of the extreme wet bulb temperatures up into four categories. So you just think about certain range might you might call, say, uncomfortably muggy. So... You know, if you think about Washington, D.C., there might be, say, five or seven weeks in a typical summer that would have wet bulb temperatures that are uncomfortably muggy, say, in the what would 74 to 80 degree Fahrenheit waves. Then if wet bulb temperatures get a little higher, 
say to the 80 to 86 degrees Fahrenheit days, those are the days where you really have um, very dangerous conditions. You get heat warnings from the Meteorology Service, National Weather Service in the U.S. Those are the temperatures you see very commonly in bad heat waves, like the 1995 heat wave in the Midwest, like the heat wave in India. And then sometimes they push even higher into what we would call extremely dangerous, or category three. And that's, those are ones where you, know, you really start to see a lot of lives at risk. So in India, you started to see heat, wet bulb temperatures pushing up around 86 degrees Fahrenheit on the worst day. The worst wet bulb temperatures in the U.S. occurred during the 1995 heat wave in the Midwest and in some parts and particularly in areas that were near recently irrigated fields. So you do have some local effects like that. You were seeing wet bulb temperatures that may have been as high as 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And then once wet bulb temperature gets above 92 degrees Fahrenheit, which basically doesn't happen naturally right now, almost anywhere on the planet, um, then those are sort of conditions where, you know, if you go on, do some moderate exercise outside for 45 minutes, you basically take your body up, body up to the temperature threshold for heat stroke, um, which we know because people have done lab experiments. So from your research and other science, what do we know about how many more such dangerous days Americans will experience in the coming decades due to climate change? Well, you know, of course, there's always a little bit of uncertainty in these projections, but we can say, well, given what we know now, what do we expect the future to look like? So if you look at the best available climate science and you look at the relationship between temperatures and humidity and how those differ around the country, we could come up with some projections for that. So right now, if you take the average American, just pick a person at random from the population of the lower 48 states, they're probably going to experience about four dangerously humid days in a typical summer. By 2030, our projections are that that will increase to about 10 days per summer. And that's more or less locked in no matter what we do with our greenhouse gases. Right? The, 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 the change over the next couple decades is locked in by the carbon dioxide we've already emitted and by the shape of the energy system. You know, we just can't change the energy system that quickly. You are listening to Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith. At this point in our conversation, there was interference on the phone line, but Dr. Kopp said, quote, In the second half of this century, that's where we really feel the effects of changes in greenhouse gases that we start making today. So if we continue on with the fossil fuel intensive growth trajectory, the average American might be experiencing around 17 dangerously humid days in a typical summer in the 2050s. You know, getting to the first threshold of sort of where we would be in, say, Louisiana today. So you're going to have, you know, as many, as much humid heat for the typical American by 2050 as for the typical Louisianan today. Um, and as people have been to Louisiana, you know, there's a, it's, it's pretty humid there. On the other hand, if we can bring emissions down somewhat, so basically stabilize emissions where they are now and then really bring them down fairly quickly in the second half of the century, we can sort of push off until about the end of the century where you get to about 18 dangerously humid days a year. Um, and if we were to have really strong reductions, the sort of reductions that are consistent with the international two-degree C target um, and with um, some of the, the phrasing in the, in the communique that came out of the G7 
um, yesterday um, that could really sort of cap the growth of humidity extremes by the middle of the century. Late up your iPod or computer with tons of free green audio from our website at www.ecoshock.org. That's E-C-O, shock like an electric shock, dot org. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with Rutgers scientist Bob Kopp. You did some of the background analysis that led to the breakthrough report called Risky Business that was launched by luminaries like Hank Paulson and Michael Bloomberg. And it's interesting. I just read some new Australian study that found that indoor office workers who presumably have air conditioning at work in Australia have a billion dollars less productivity during heat waves because their sleep is disturbed during hot nights. What did you find out about worker productivity in a hotter world? Well, our study for the Risky Business Project um, you know, wasn't just drawing upon our work. So we drew upon a lot of work that's been done by the economics community over the last decade or so and then integrated it with state-of-the-art climate projections. And one of the things that's come out of the economics literature over the last decade is that there is a relationship between temperature and productivity. And in this case, productivity, these studies are focusing on the number of hours people actually work. So it's not the quality of their work, it's just the number of hours work. And there, there, as you get raised temperatures above around 80 degrees Fahrenheit, there's a decrease in the number of hours that people work. And that's particularly true in, true in some key economic sectors that are especially exposed to heat. So, so not office workers so much as manufacturing, mining, agriculture, those sorts of, of sectors where people are either in factories or they're actually directly exposed outdoors to heat. So that has a pretty significant effect on labor productivity. There's a smaller number change in the minute the uh, number of hours worked for people inside, but there is some new work, uh, like the one you mentioned, coming out that's focusing on the quality of the work. And we, we weren't able to incorporate that into our study, but that's potentially a significant effect. And if you look at these high-risk sectors, so as I said, like manufacturing or outdoor work, you're looking at sort of under that fossil fuel-intensive growth trajectory, maybe a percent or two decrease in, in labor productivity over the course of the century, which you know, may not seem like much, but just think about that in, in employment terms, right? I mean, we worry about the difference between a 5% employment and a, and a 6% employment, right? And in the, the sort of outdoor sectors and manufacturing, that's of that scale. And I find it interesting the electric grid is also less productive during heat waves. It takes more power just to cool electric generating plants, and the, the grid is less efficient. Can you tell us anything about that? Sure. Uh, well, so there are a couple of things that happen with the electricity grid. So, so one, re- there are reduced efficiencies in transmission. There may be strains on production. So, you know, the, the, the most obvious example, the one we actually see happening a fair bit, you know, if, if the cooling water supply, say for a nuclear power plant, gets too warm, you've got to shut down the plant. So that reduces the supply. Another major thing that happens, of course, and it, and it relates to where we started this discussion, is with demand for energy. Of course, on, on really hot days, lots of people want to turn on the air conditioning, which, which they need to do to, to keep themselves healthy. But that drives up demand on the grid. So that drives up the price of electricity. It means that, that you have to turn on some more power plants, what we call peaker plants, that aren't running a lot of the time. So those also tend to be the worst polluting power plants because they're only run a small fraction of the time. So it contributes to air pollution on, on bad days. And so all these, these factors together serve to stress both energy supply and energy demand and heat waves. 
So, along with a few million people who read Zero Hedge, I happen to think we live in a financial environment that's already fragile and overextended with massive debt. Now, Bob Cop, what happens to that system if we add, say, ten more multi-billion-dollar storms like Hurricanes Sandy and Katrina? Well, I think that's a, that's a good question. You know, I'm going to speak from from my perspective in the U.S. You know, and after, and in fact, from my perspective in in New Jersey, where we were hit by by Superstorm Sandy back in in 2011, there are a number of things that come into play after the storms, right? So you've got damaged property; people have to to rebuild, or or they may be be relocated. And so, in the, in the U.S., you've got the National Flood Insurance Program coming in. In cases like that, and then you've got disaster relief coming in as well. And so, you know, for Superstorm Sandy, that was, I believe, well in the seventy or eighty billion dollar total price range just for that one storm. And if you have more of those, um, you know, already the National Flood Insurance Program is well out of balance. You know, it was close; it, its finances were close to in balance until Katrina, and then it was knocked further out of balance by Sandy. And that's actually a fundamental almost mathematical problem with systems like that. In the cases of these storms, it's really the worst cases that are driving the losses. And you, you have some cases where basically you have no, you can't have a mathematically have a stable system because the damages are going to be so dominated by the last bad thing that happened to you. And so that makes it hard to run a, a financially balanced insurance program, which is, of course, why the private sector often cases doesn't insure um, some of these places that are affected. So one of the major effects is that, you know, more extreme events probably means you have more emergency relief. It means you have more government involved in, in, in transferring money to relief because we're probably not going to, you know, just abandon people who's, who's suffering from floods or, or droughts or, or things like that. In a radio interview on WHYY Radio in Philadelphia, you talked about the many risks that could be assigned a dollar value, easily understood by business. Then you said there are some risks that cannot be expressed economically, but still worry you quite a bit. What were you thinking of there? Yeah, so I think the thing that that worries me the most, and I'm not going to say it can't be expressed economically so much as we don't really know how to express it economically, are our dependencies upon ecosystems. You know, humans aren't, you know, we aren't living in a spaceship isolated from our environment. We depend upon ecosystems for clean air and clean water. We know from the geological record that ecosystems can be significantly affected by climate change, but we don't have a good way of of, of projecting a lot of those changes. And so, you know, the thing I worry about, and I worry about it because I don't think we have a good way of assessing it, and maybe it's a significant problem and maybe it's not, is how ecosystems are going to respond to the increasing stress we're facing on them. They started out already stressed by overpopulation and land use changes, and now we're we're heaping climate change on top of that. And so, you know, that's what I would most worry about. Now, despite all this, Bob, you're not a total doomer thinking it's all over. How will we cope with this climate mess now that we have changed Earth's primary systems? Well, I mean, we, we and first thing we do is, is start taking steps to stop changing them more. You know, as I said, there's already a fair bit that, that's baked into the system by the choices we've already made, both by the physics of, of the heat-trapping gases and also by the fact that it, you can't just turn the global energy system around on a dime. It, it, it takes a lot of time. 
but we can start, uh, as we are starting, shifting the energy system over to an energy system that, that doesn't rely on carbon that's been buried in the ground for millions of years and I'm pumping that carbon from the ground into the atmosphere. So one set of actions, what we call mitigation, right? So transitioning away from these fossil fuel dependent energy systems to one that relies on low carbon and zero carbon energy sources like solar and wind. The other major thing is to recognize that we have baked some changes into the system and think about how we're going to adapt to those. So, you know, in the case of, say, sea level rise, that may well mean, as we're starting to see as we rebuild from Sandy in the, in the northeastern U.S., thinking about elevating our houses more, that might buy us some time. We may have to think about retreating from some places along the shore in the longer term. As we mentioned in our article in the Times, we have to think about how we provide cooling for people in, in heat waves. Air conditioning is one way of doing that, although, as, as we also mentioned, that comes with its own problems because it increases the demand for energy. But we can use more energy-efficient building techniques, things like cool roofs, that can help reduce that demand for energy. And we similarly need to beef up our public health systems to make sure that we don't let as many people die during heat waves. You know, these, are, these, these adaptation measures are, are necessary in developed countries like the U.S. and Canada, but they're also especially necessary in places without our strong public health systems and, and like in the developing world, which are also places where they have a lot more people working in these sort of outdoor work sectors that are, are particularly sensitive to heat waves. We've been speaking with a Rutgers University scientist who is deeply involved in the ways climate will impact the economy, human health, and our lives. Find out more about Dr. Bob Kopp at bobkopp.net, and that's Kopp with two Ps. And I recommend his technical notes with more info on the June 7th New York Times op-ed. You can also find more links in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Thank you so much for talking with us on Radio Ecoshock. It's been a pleasure to be here. That's a wrap for Extreme Heat number 2. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our common future.